Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Let's just pray and ask the Lord to be with us from his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We're all here. Uh, The very best that could be said of us is that we are redeemed sinners. Lord, in ourselves, we are just as human beings, needy. We were never created to live on our own. We were created to live in your universe, which you watch over. We were created to know you. We were created always to live in your providence, that you would order our lives, that you would protect us, that you would watch over us, that you would be our great shepherd. That was ordained from the beginning. That's not just about redemption. That's just about being human in your universe. Lord, this morning we're going to address fatherhood, and you are the great father. Lord, we just pray this morning that we would have a sense of that, just a, a renewed sense of that. <clears throat> Can't imagine there's anyone here who doesn't know that that is your title. You are our Father. That has been your title from all eternity. That has been who you are. That is your essential identity. You are not just God. You are God the Father. You have always been that in the entirety of your being, in all your existence from all time. And Lord, we praise you for that. And again, just ask this morning, you would do what I cannot do, what no book can do, what no preacher can do, that you would just shine that into each of our lives this morning, that you are the great Father. But because we're sinners, we are in need of redemption, and you, as the great Father, sent your eternal Son into the world to become a man, to be called the Son of God, to die on a cross, to rise again, to be exalted to your right hand. And you have given him the job description, not only to save us from our sin in terms of forgiveness, a just forgiveness, not only to give the Holy Spirit, but to guide and direct all of human history in the big matters and in the little ones in order to bring us to your eternal throne one day as the children of God. So Lord, we thank you for this. That is the foundation of our lives. That is the foundation upon which we are here this morning before you. And uh, just pray you'd open your word. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Now I will mention that... uh, About 9 o'clock this morning, I found out I was going to be preaching, which is interesting, not Chris's fault. I have my phone set to not wake or not sound any noises till 9 o'clock. So there's no PowerPoints this morning. Some of you may be relieved. Some of you may be sad. I don't know. There's more scriptures I wish I could have wished I could have looked up, but just didn't. Couldn't. But you'll get the drift of things. But the passage that just came to mind was this passage where Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he lays out the history of redemption. He lays out the, the paradigm of who is God how he saves human beings. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are delineated in chapter 1. If someone wonders about the Trinity, go to Ephesians chapter 1, 1 through 14. It's just right there. God the Father chooses and purposes and does everything according to his will. The Son redeems and the Holy Spirit applies that redemption in our lives. 
The Holy Spirit seals, not unto the day of apostasy, but unto the day of redemption. That is the picture you get in Ephesians chapter 1. It's just a, a grand panorama of redemption in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul goes even further to say this, this Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is not just someone who died on a cross and then rose, but he is someone who is exalted to God's right hand, far above all principality and power, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in the world that is to come. We find that Jesus Christ has been given to the human race to bring God's purposes of redemption to pass in every individual's life. The Bible gives us grand schemes, gives us grand ideals, but God works in the very details of the most insignificant individual in history. God loves to save not the great, but the small. Not the significant, but the insignificant. And so Paul is giving us this grand picture of redemption in Ephesians and this grand panorama of the history of it and the place we are now in it so that in our personal lives we will get the ideal and the big picture and we will interpret our lives by that every day. He then goes on to talk about in chapter 2 that we were dead in trespasses and sins. What did God save us from? Many things. Trespasses and sins. The judicial wrath of God. It's real. It's poured out now. That's why you have wars and all manner of just hard things that happen in life. People say, well, if God is good, how come bad things are happening in the world? Well, there's a clear, clear answer, and I wish the apologists would always be clear because it's very simple. It's because of sin. It is God's wrath responding to sin. It is the justice of God responding to human sin. The Bible's not ambiguous about that. The Bible doesn't apologize for that. The Bible basically says there's such a thing in the universe called righteousness and justice, and God is not going to abandon that because humans have decided to rebel against him. This is his universe, and he's going to uphold his righteousness and his justice in his universe. And that's just the way it is. Paul says you were in this state. You were under the power of darkness. You were floundering and flopping around in the world of just ignorance and blowing in the wind and God came and redeemed you from sin and brought you into a holy spiritual union with his son to where Paul could say you are seated with him right now in the heavenly places. That's the foundation of our life as Christians. So when Satan comes with his old song in your life, say, hey, here's the song you need to sing. I've been shortchanged. God's mean. I didn't get something. God's just hard. Stop and go, okay, no, not singing that song. I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul lays that out and explains what grace is by grace you've been saved. end of chapter 2, he gives us the history of redemption in the sense of going to this <clears throat> bigger picture of God's purposes in what we call the Old Testament. There is only one book of God. We've divided it up into two testaments. <clears throat> uh, not sure that was the best thing to do, but that's, that's what we have. It's all one book of God. It's all one purpose of God. It's all one redemptive history of God. And Paul explains that at the last half of chapter 2 and where we are in it. A good summary verse says, So then you are no more strangers and sojourners, but you are 
fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And that's where Paul just, you know, when he's talking about the history of redemption, he says, who are you now where you're of the household of God? You're just not an individual saved sinner. You have been brought into the household of God. The household of God that's a big house that every believer from every era of human history, whether you go back to Eve, yes, I believe Eve was a saved person. Whether you go back to Enoch, whether you go back to Noah, whether you go back to Abraham, and everybody in between that has not been identified by name. As God moves forward, Moses, the prophets, people who had faith in God, who served God in their generation within the covenant in which they were under, of the household of God. When you get up in the morning and look in the mirror, is that what you say to yourself? I'm of the household of God. Paul goes on to explain that this household of God is a, is a big house that incorporates Jews and Gentiles. That was God's purpose from the beginning. We all remember what God said to Abraham, and you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Any idea that the church is a parenthesis in the history of redemption is invalid. It is Israel that was a parenthesis in the history of redemption, not the church. The body of believers, the great body of believers, the fullness of him who fills all in all, the end of chapter one, was the ultimate goal of the history of redemption. But Paul describes it as the household of God. We have a purpose, and Paul outlines that purpose to the intent that now, in your personal lives, right now, as you are responding and interacting in your lives with the things that, that come into your lives as you're responding either in faith or unbelief. Now, unto the principalities and powers in the heavenly places is being made known, is being displayed the manifold wisdom of God. So we often think that, you know, our unbelief or our disobedience is just something that falls on us. It's like, no, you got, you got a whole universe watching you every day. How are you responding to the good things God brings in your life and to the hard things that God brings into your life? Principalities and powers. Some of you think you might get shorts changed. You really think you should have been in, in, in Hollywood and on the stage. Well, I'm telling you this morning, you are on the stage. But it's not Hollywood. It's real life. You have the opportunity as a believer to display under principalities and powers that Jesus Christ is worthy of your love, your faith, your hope, your trust. That God is your Father. And you're going to live for him. And Paul summarizes, or finishes, I should say, everything he's been saying in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, I'm praying for you, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father, a prayer that begins actually in chapter 1, verse 15. For this cause I also, having heard of the faith, and, and so and so, see not, cease not to give thanks for you in my prayers. And now he's finishing he started saying, hey, I've been praying for you all, and oh, by the way, here's all the things that enter into my prayers. Here's all the things that I think of you because they are true of you. And now as he finishes for this cause, I'm bowing my knees unto the Father. From whom every fatherhood or the whole fatherhood or the whole, better yet, the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. That's where he ends up. That God is our Father. And I believe when he's saying in whom the whole fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named, or the whole family, the whole household, if you will, terminology from a few verses before, 
Paul is just trying to draw this final panoramic picture. This final ideal view that we should have to interpret our lives with is that we are of the household of God and God is the great Father. The great Father. He is the one who gives meaning and definition from whom we are named. God's name is over his household. And the whole final picture is that of fatherhood. Now today has been set aside in our culture, in our traditions that we have in America. Yes, we have them. It's been set aside as a time for recognizing and honoring fatherhood. But as Christians today, we are sort of in this strange position. We want to acknowledge Father's Day to be part of our culture. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. God sets fatherhood up there. So just because something's a tradition in our culture doesn't mean it's bad or we should ignore it. Fatherhood doesn't begin at redemption, it begins at creation. But oddly, given the circumstances of our culture, the place we find ourselves in our culture, having Father's Day seems a little insincere. Because to celebrate fatherhood, have a day set aside for it, flies directly in the face of the social architects and the cultural engineers who seem to be working overtime to erase fatherhood from Western civilization. There's a group out there that became prominent in the last few years, and one of the points of their platform was to dissolve the nuclear family, that is, destroy fatherhood. Get rid of fatherhood. Get rid of manhood. In actuality, get rid of manhood and womanhood. I'm still trying to figure out what they want to put in place of it. The absurdity of today's cultural architects is just nothing but destruction. They have no idea what to put in place other than big glowing descriptions of something that is totally unattainable. We have a day in which we're going to set aside to recognize and honor fatherhood, and yet we live in a culture, in a world that very purposefully confuses gender. Maleness and femaleness is said to be artificial, to be ephemeral, to be socially constructed. It's not real. It's just what has been in vogue in the past, and we can rearrange it and redefine it however we wish. So a day set aside for fatherhood, Father's Day seems, wow, (laughs) seems to conflict with the direction of the culture, at least those who are in charge of the media and trying to architect it. We live in a world that very purposefully distorts womanhood. It is unable and unwilling. It is more than unable. It is, it is unwilling to define what should be obvious to anybody and everybody because it does not fit their definition. We live in a world that erases manhood. The only definition that is of a manhood that is allowed is that manhood must be seen as demeaning and toxic and patriarchal. And therefore, we live in a, in a world that dismisses fatherhood. Again, the rejection of the nuclear family, and especially the rejection as fathers of fathers as the cornerstone of that family. That's considered to be heresy to the social architects. And what is the result? The result is a rapidly decaying social order where boys are left to drift 
boys are left to define themselves. And usually they don't come up with a good definition. Men are relegated into the corner and told that they have no legitimate input into the affairs of things unless they are willing to affirm the current politically and socially correct ideology. We live in an environment where fatherhood is a legitimate institution, is ignored, and barely on the radar. But as we turn to the Bible, we see, no, it's a very different picture. We don't have to go very far back in history, really five, ten years, and it was a very different picture. So what I want to submit to you this morning, just to, just to look at fatherhood and be reminded, and for almost all of us, this is just being reminded, hopefully being refreshed, just three things. The fatherhood, how does the Bible present fatherhood as a paradigm? How does the Bible present manhood as its foundation? And that fatherhood is the cornerstone of the family. So fatherhood is a paradigm. We're seeing it here in Ephesians 3.14. God is the ultimate picture. He's the one who is the father of all, all that will dwell eternally with him. And this is what eternity will be like. God will be our father forever. God is going to have a whole pile of children. He has a whole bunch of people with all kinds of personalities. It's interesting as I sort of watch them in YouTubes and things, all the different personalities God has professing Christians. Some of them I'm like, nah, I'm not sure I believe some of the things you're talking about, but I believe you're a Christian and you're going to be with me in heaven. There's dull personalities, there's exciting personalities, and then personalities in between. God gave me a very exuberant personality as a help me. The personalities are interesting. I don't know what her description as to what God gave her, but you can ask her and let her tell you. But fatherhood is a paradigm. It's a paradigm that has been established by God as the ultimate paradigm of human relationship. The paradigm is simply God is the example of human relationship. He is the pattern. He is the model. He is the framework in which we are to understand human relationship. You don't have to read very far in Genesis chapter 1 before God says, hey, here's what I'm doing. I'm the one who's made the world. He's involved in every step of the way. It's all his purpose. It's all his design. And you get like two lines that describe the human race, and that is, first of all, we're male and female. So we have a whole world out there rebelling against reality itself. There is maleness and femaleness. Nothing in between, nothing outside, no third <clears throat> rail here. Maleness and femaleness, and that defines the human race. And we find in chapter 2 that when we zero in on this maleness and femaleness, what do we find? That there's a man who was made from the dust of the ground and a woman who was made from him, and they are brought together as husband and wife. And we find the ultimate bottom line unit of human socialization, the family. The state is not the ultimate unit of socialization. The state is almost a sort of an intermediate institution that's given to preserve sinful humanity. We don't see the state until Genesis chapter 9. It's an antidote to the destructiveness of anarchy in the human race. The family is the unit. And God, as the paradigm of fatherhood, has several characteristics that are vital to his fatherhood. The first of those characteristics is that God is righteous. And I'm going to read from Psalm 11, verse 7. 
Sorry, I don't have my little PowerPoints where usually I just pop right over to it. I actually go through my Bible and find it again. Now the psalm, it's only seven verses in this psalm, and he talks about some things, about the righteous, the wicked, enemies, etc., etc. Verse 5, the Lord tries the righteous, but the wicked in him that loves violence his soul hates. Verse 6, upon the wicked he will rain snares and fire and brimstone and burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. God responds to wickedness. God takes it personal. If someone doesn't like it, that's tough luck. It's God's universe. That's how he responds. And then the last verse is a summary of everything that's gone before. There's some good things. But the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. And the upright, the righteous, shall behold his face. Here's one of the bottom line character, I guess, Issues for God, character elements, if you will, if you're going to dissect God and say who he is. The Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. God is a father and as a father, the first thing about him is he loves righteousness. What if you found out God didn't love righteousness? What if you found out God loved lying and stealing and How would you feel about God? I remember as a child trying to get away with sneaking this every now and then, trying to get away with a lie here every now and then. And I couldn't have articulated it then. I can go back and analyze it now. But in my mind, parents were perfect, at least for a while. That changes, but it was still back when I I thought that. My dad would never lie. My mom would not sneak things. But, you know, that was sort of what I did and tried to get away with it. I felt secure in my parents' house, not because I couldn't get away, not because I got away with things, but because I couldn't. But because there was this framework in which I lived, in which what I thought at least, righteousness and truth were the framework. Kids lie, moms and dads don't, right? Isn't that how you thought as a little kid? And it gave you a sense of security, it gave you a foundation. Now, you, you, you weren't you know, dealing with, with, with that foundation well at every point. But man, that's what you assumed, isn't it? And as Christians, what do you assume about God? When you get on your knees, whether you're full of joy or whether you get on your knees broken and dispirited, what do you always assume about God? That the righteous Lord loves righteousness, right? You assume that he's just. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So you always assume that no matter what, God will treat you fairly. And one of the things you discovered as a kid is when you felt like you were getting treated unfairly, right? And that was like hard to take, wasn't it? And sometimes you were because your parents, although they wanted to be, couldn't be omniscient. They they weren't always in touch with all the facts, so sometimes their assessments and their judgments were unfair, And what you needed to work out is, well, there's all the times I got away with stuff. This time I'm getting charged with what I didn't do, but when it equals out, I'm still doing pretty good in balance. You see, we have these assumptions about our parents, and we have these assumptions about God, that God is righteous and that God is just. And we also have this assumption that even then we feel like we're, you know, with Joe, we can say God's rolling me in the dust in my life, You still, bottom line, know that God cares for you. That's why you're willing to get on your knees and pray to him. Because God cares. And those three things, that God is righteous, that God is just, that God loves you and cares for your life, those really are foundations that you assume when you come to him, don't you? And God declares himself to be such throughout his word. 
And when you think of these things, what does it foster? In the end, it fosters a sense of trust. I can trust God. I can pour out my heart before him. He's not going to treat me unfairly. That's the one thing. You come to the Lord and you can say, Lord, you know all things. That's why it's great for God to be the righteous judge, because he knows everything. He knows that when you said that word, you really didn't mean to, and uh, it just slipped out instead of someone else perhaps interpreting you as harsh and mean. It's like, nah, it just slipped out because I'm under pressure. God knows that. The other person might not, but God does. And so you come to God because there's, there's trust in God and that you live in a stable world in a sense that the, that the righteous God runs the show. And there might be injustice here and there, but there's reasons for it. That God is righteous, that God is just, that God cares for you brings trust, it brings stability, and you know you can depend on God. You just know that, don't you? And when you think of God's leadership qualities, and he's a leader, he's a father, he does things, he leads us. Is there anybody here that thinks God is selfish? I mean, the atheists are going to come and mock God and say, well, the whole universe is just created for himself. It's like, well, yeah, it's his. And this one who created the whole universe for himself said, I'm creating a universe so I can bestow my goodness and love. That's kind of an unselfish reason to create a universe. God is selfless, and he leads us and guides us with selflessness. He's not selfish. And while God gives directives and imperatives all over the place... He's neither a tyrant nor controlling. This is the paradigm of God's fatherhood. This is the mold that we're to follow. And God manages the whole universe and he manages our life, but he doesn't micromanage. Do any of you ever feel from God you're micromanaged? You know, well, I like chocolate ice cream, but God's telling me i got to eat vanilla ice cream. You know, that's just the way it is, because God likes vanilla, and so I'm going to be micromanaged. It's interesting when people debate Calvinism versus Arminianism, you can ultimately just ask the simple question, do you feel like you're free, or do you feel like you're controlled? Everybody's worried, well, if I become a Calvinist, you know, I'm a, that makes me a robot. I'm like, no, it doesn't. God is absolutely sovereign, but I feel free. I feel free within the boundaries of which I can make my own choices freely. God doesn't coerce me. God directs me. God gives me some boundaries, but he doesn't control me. He doesn't micromanage. And I'm simply saying this is because as fathers, what are we supposed to be doing? You see, we're in the image of God, and part of that image is fatherhood. God is the good father. He is the great father. He is righteous and just, and he has love and care. You can trust him. Under his fatherhood, there's stability, at least in the heart and the life. The world might be a little crazy, but in our lives, there's trust, there's stability, there's dependability. God is selfless. God directs without being a tyrant. God manages without micromanaging. That's proper leadership. And fatherhood is leading the home and learning the skill sets of management. They're vital. So fatherhood is a paradigm. Manhood is a foundation. In the world today, we have a lot of focus on personality. And manhood has nothing to do with personality. A dominating, domineering, asserting personality, that's not manhood versus someone who's more meek. That's, manhood is not about personality. Manhood is not about propensity. Well, he's a real man. You know, he goes in the, into the woods and kills Bambi. He's a real man. My dad loved doing all that. I could care less about it. I'm sure I was a big disappointment to him because he took me hunting once and they killed pheasants and I'm looking at this dead pheasant going, 
All he was doing was just trying to be a pheasant. And they killed him. It's like, what's, what in the world? Who wants to go hunting and kill things? When I was a kid, I got my first BB gun because as a, as, a, as, a, as a male, at least, you're, you're usually pretty infatuated with guns, although Gwen was pretty infatuated too, beat everybody at the, at the gun range. i never forget, we had a brother in the church who prided himself that he was a great gun person. Gwen challenged him, or he challenged Gwen, and uh, he lost. <laughs> anyway, so girls can like guns too. It's not a guy-girl thing, but as a boy, you're kind of infatuated, so I got this either BB gun or pellet gun, I can't remember, and I went out and I'm like, oh, there's a bird, and I shot it, and, and I wounded it, and it was just sitting there chirping on the ground. And I'm like, what was I thinking? I, now I've got to go kill this thing for real, or he's going to be you know, miserable and die a miserable death. After that, I'm like, I'm never killing another living thing in my life. So I don't like hunting for various reasons. My granddaughter was all proud that she shot a deer a few months ago. I'm like, well, good for her, but don't take me hunting. So it's not about propensities, playing sports, football, this and that. I'm not a football person. I'm not a basketball person. I'm not any sport person but surfing. That just makes me cool, and everybody else is boring. But it's not about propensity. Manhood in the Word of God is defined by Proverbs chapter 1, verse 6. The fear of the Lord is the beginning the foundation, the chief part of all wisdom. The word of the Lord. Turn to Psalm 1. We have a definition of manhood here in Psalm 1. The opening psalm of the Bible you would think would be like the final psalm of the Bible. The final psalm is the whole creation worshiping God, symbols, timbrels, everybody, everybody just worshiping God. You would think that that's how the psalms open up, right? This is the Psalms. This is about singing. This is about blessing the Lord. And the Psalms don't open that way. The Psalms open almost like the book of Proverbs. Blessed is the man, verse 1, that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Psalm 1 opens with the foundation of being able to worship God. And it's that you trust God, you believe in God, you reject a wicked and dark world and all of its counsel and all of its opinions and all of its ideas, no matter how much they dress it up and make it fancy and make it sophisticated, you reject that in favor of the counsel of God. A real man has to reject the world's counsel and embrace God's counsel, the fear of the Lord. If you are not doing that, forget the rest of the Psalms. You won't get anywhere. You can't worship God unless you have a proper view that God and his word is at the center of existence and reality. And if you are ever going to prosper, if you are ever going to be well-pleasing to God, you must start with the fear of the Lord and you must start with the Holy Scriptures. And the Holy Scriptures are just, you know, they're, they're not that hard to figure out. Sure, I don't know what Ezekiel says in the last eight, ten chapters. You know, it's good stuff, I'm sure, but it's fulfilled in Christ. I know the fulfillment of it. I may not know the details of it, but I know the fulfillment of it. And the fulfillment is easy to grasp. It's not hard to figure out when God says, you know, you don't steal, you don't lie, you don't do these. That's not hard to figure out. When the Bible says you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, that's not hard to figure out. When the Bible says, you know, put away all wrath and malice and anger... That's not hard to figure out. When God says, put to death immorality, love of stuff, that's not hard to figure out. And so most of the Bible is easy to figure out. And so a real man embraces that word, and in his law does he meditate day and night. This is the foundation of fatherhood. Manhood is the foundation of fatherhood. Proverbs 5.15. Oops, I'm in the Psalms. Now, each, males and females, all have their own challenges, and men, unfortunately, is born in sin, have a challenge. And real men deal with it. 
Drink waters out of your own cistern and running waters out of your own well. Speaking of sexual purity and integrity. That's the foundation of fatherhood. If you're going to pass that on to your children, especially your sons, you have to be living it yourself. Moral purity. Proverbs 1 through 30. We know that Proverbs 31 is reserved in particular to describe women, but in reality it's actually an exhortation to men as to what to look for in women. It's a woman's view of womanhood that that she's passing on to her son, who's going to be king one day, and says, if you want a good woman, here's what you look for. Don't follow, you know, your eyes. Follow character. Because character always wins the day. She's the one that your heart can trust in. But all of the chapters before are about real manhood. Yes, real humanhood, as it were, or personhood. But real manhood. Real manhood is clearly defined for us in 30 chapters of the book of Proverbs, in big ticket items and in details of life. And of course, the true man, the ultimate man, walked this earth, Jesus Christ, and we're said to take him as a model. Paul can talk about the tender mercies of Jesus Christ and I remember the license plate that read, My Savior is as tough as nails. There's books out there, Tough and Tender. Someone's been denigrating them, by the way, a popular movement to denigrate them, to denigrate these portraits of manhood. Men of strength for women of God. And so if you're going to be a father, these are the things you have to have as the foundation of your life. You have to be have been and succeeding at, in some measure, developing these things. Manhood is the foundation of fatherhood. And then finally, fatherhood is a cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, it's interesting that, you know, we have a popular uh, radio show, and it's a good one. It's good that it's popular, but it's called Focus on the Family. And that's fine, except, you know, the Bible is focused on discipleship, guys. Family is but a part of it. And you have to be successful in all areas of discipleship, but family is a part of it. It's a big part, but it's a part. We only have really two passages in the New Testament that address fatherhood, if you think about it. One is in Ephesians, and then there's a, a letter written about the same time, Colossians, Ephesians chapter 6. The first thing you're supposed to do in Ephesians chapter 5 is, well, let's get the relationship between husband and wife straight, get that worked out. You've got to have that successful, at least to some measure, to be a good father. Secondly, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Not because, you, you know, you're going to get something good, but the ultimate foundation is it's right. Now, you will get something good out of it, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment <clears throat> with promise. So you'll get something good out of it if you obey your parents, but the foundation is it's right. It's what God set up from the beginning. Children honor parents. Parents don't honor children. Children honor parents. Parents love children. Parents provide for children. That's what we're talking about. Parents do a lot of things for children, but children honor parents. Honor goes this way, not that way. It'll be that way forever. I'm supposed to honor my father, but my children are supposed to honor me. I mean, that's just the way of things. That's a design of Genesis 1 and 2. But verse 3, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. <clears throat> verse 4, and you fathers provoke not your children to wrath. Isn't that one of the things we talked about? God is righteous. And God is just. If you're provoking your children to wrath by unreasonable demands, unreasonable structures, and unreasonable expectations, and is provoking them to the wrath to the point where they feel like you're unjust, then you're not. I mean, it's, it's a legitimate feeling. A lot of kids, if you tell them to empty the trash, well, you just ask them to, you know, shoulder the universe. 
But in a realistic way, you have to not provoke your children to wrath. You have to be like God. You have to be righteous and you have to be just. You try to be as omniscient as you can in your finiteness and you want to be fair because all of us know there's a couple things that are just arrows, flaming arrows to the heart. One is injustice, the other is betrayal. Those are just arrows. I mean, if someone says, Steve, you're a turkey, I'm like, "Eh, okay, you're probably right, but that's an easy arrow to pull out. But if I get betrayed, I mean, like, (sighs) that one's so deep and burns so hard. And that's what it is with your kids. Don't provoke them to wrath. Paul puts his finger on the thing that is the worst arrow you can send. Injustice. Be fair. Be righteous. Be reasonable. Be just. Don't provoke your children to wrath. Be like God who does not do that. But nurture them in the chastening and the admonition of the Lord. Well, is there any book of the Bible that fits that description? Proverbs. All these books on parenting that I've read over the years, they basically portray parents as being evangelists for their children. That is not your job. Your job is the book of Proverbs. Now, part of the book of Proverbs, hey, you teach your children to fear the Lord. But nevertheless, your job is to nurture them in the chase and admonition of the Lord. I I said this some years ago when we were sort of talking about parenting. And I I tried then. It didn't seem to, to, to go well, but I'll try it again. If you want to know the essence of your job as fathers and as parents, imagine that there was no sin that you had to deal with. There was just you, a non-sinner, and your children with not sinful propensities. I don't think there would be spanking. I don't know. I doubt it. But what would your job be if there was no sin? Because God has made it so the children, again, they don't raise themselves and they, they are mentored. They, 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 they take on the propensities of their parents. And your job as a father in a world of no sin would be what? Well, I want my son to grow up and be a man. And all that that means and all that that takes. And I want my daughter to grow up and be a good woman. And all that that means and all that that takes. That's the essence of your job as a parent. Now, because sin is involved, you have other things. So if you're raising your child and they're three years old and they look up in the sky and, Daddy, where did the stars come from? What would you tell them if there was no sin? God made it, right? There would only be Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We wouldn't, that would be the extent of the Bible. And you would just draw from that and draw it all out. Yep. And, and, you know, your daughter would go, well, why am I different from my brother? Well, because God made you male and female. And you would have to explain that in interesting ways. But that's your job as a parent. Now, because sin is involved, you have some extra activities. And you do have a purpose to see your children saved. And you pray for them and and you always remind them of Jesus and you always remind them of repenting and believing when it's appropriate. But your main job, your main task is just to make them wholesome citizens in God's world with God's wisdom and God's grace and God's truth. You're to nurture them in the chasing admonition of the Lord. You're to create an umbrella where you are righteous, just and loving and caring. Now I asked a, I I consulted this morning a, what I consider to be one of my main theological sources in my household. And my question as I came to this source was, well, what what is a father supposed to be and do? And as I considered it, the response I got was protect, provide, love, guide, and instruct. And that was Gwen Pearson Cowden, Um, You can get her book down at the bookstore. (laughs) That's a daughter's view, by the way. Fathers, your daughters need you. You know, a son is a son until he takes a wife. A daughter is a daughter all of her life. That's a true observation. They need you to be protectors, providers, 
to love, to guide, to instruct. Your sons need you because they've got to remember what they're supposed to be. You need to be men of God, men of the book of Proverbs. Whether you hunt or whether you surf, you need to be men of character. You need to imitate God, your Father. You can only do that if you're in Christ successfully, meaningfully. And because this is a human thing, there are many stories out there of good men who are good fathers, but they cannot ultimately bring their children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord because they don't fear the Lord themselves. So the first requirement to be a true father is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be born of God. And that's what I leave with you this morning. God is the great father. And you need to imitate him in your family. You're the cornerstone. No one can replace you. No one can replace a mom and all that a mom brings to the table, to the party. And no one can replace a father. You have to be who you're supposed to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to your throne. We thank you. We can call on you as Father. We thank you that every letter of the New Testament talks about your fatherhood. Begins with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that is your designation. And as fathers, we have the blessed opportunity to imitate you in these areas. And Lord, just pray for the men of this body. Just pray that fatherhood would grip them even more, the privilege of it would grip them even more, the responsibility of it would grip them even more, and they would even be more determined to be like you uh, in how they run their households, how they relate to their children. Lord, a world is denigrating it, a world's chipping away at it, not with little, little chisels, but with big sledgehammers. And Lord, just pray that we will never be intimidated by it. We will always stand bold and strong that we are the fathers. To get to our family, you've got to get through us. Whether it's through ideology or whatever. And the word, we're the fathers and we're going to protect our families. We're going to protect from lies, from untruth, from manipulation by, uh, Lord, the, the, the so-called social justice movement that has seemed to infiltrate everything. Lord, we are going to clarify to our children that this is God's world and that you need to live under God in it and trust him. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.